This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quaker's Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Well, good morning, friends. Glad to be back with you this morning. And today we'll be talking about the German election, which has recently been held, though the um, outcome is not sure at this point. The center uh, left got the ma- almost majority of the votes by a very slim margin, and there'll be a coalition discussion that may go on for some time. And we're talking with senior lecturer Sharina Kelly, deputy director of the National Center for Research in Europe, and she her teaching researches around Europe and trade. And Matthew Dodge, senior fellow at the European Union Studies Association, Asia Pacific, also at Canterbury. A welcome to Community or Chaos. Thank you. And friends, you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, and then going to Community or Chaos shortly after this program is aired. And anything else we've done this year, you can podcast. Oh, most of the things we've done this year. Well, could you briefly talk about the German electoral system and its similarities in connection with the New Zealand electoral system? Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks for having us on to to discuss this. Um, New Zealand's electoral system, MMP, first used in 1996, as your listeners will all know, is essentially the German electoral system. Um, Over there, they call it Personalisierte Verhältniswahl, or Personalised Proportional Representation. We borrowed it directly from them, but with one minor difference in relation to the party thresholds uh, required to to gain representation in Parliament. So in in New Zealand, um, in order to be proportionately represented, a party needs to either pass that 5% party vote threshold or win a single electorate seat, at which point you'll be topped up. In Germany, they have the same 5% party vote threshold, um, or you're required to win three electorate seats from uh, the 299 constituency seats that, that are spread across the 16 lender in Germany. So that's the only difference. Otherwise, we took it directly from them. Now, what? how was that developed? Is It happened right after World War II, didn't it? It did. It did. You're absolutely right. Um, the electoral system was a product of that post-war settlement. So 
in the different allied zones of influence following the end of the Second World War, local and lender or state elections were held under different systems. Uh, in the American entrenched zones, they used a pure proportional representation system that had no constituency seats. You simply voted for a party. And that was the system that, that had been in operation in the interwar Weimar Republic. Um, and that had created huge instability there. They had something like 40 parties represented in, in, in the Weimar parliament, not exactly an ideal situation. In the British zone, um, they established a compromise system where voters had a single vote for a constituency representative, but they also held a number of, of seats aside to, to ensure proportionality. And that was kind of a raw form of, of MMP. Now, before the, the first federal election in, in 1949, a German parliamentary council met to decide what the national electoral system would be. And they opted for that MMP model from the British zone. Um, that was used at the 1949 election and then they modified it slightly before the 1953 election. And that modification included introducing a second vote. So now you had your constituency vote and your party list vote. And it also included the, the incorporation of those thresholds, the 5% party threshold um, and the three constituency seat threshold. And that's the system we see in Germany today. If I could, I just yes. might just add a little bit of a difference with New Zealand and Germany as well, just to make it a little bit, um, I guess, relevant for our our listeners is I think the biggest difference at the moment is in New Zealand it's quite still quite new you know there's still criticisms about MMP in New Zealand and that it's not um, democratic enough but I think it's about experience in Germany and they've had it for so long so their leaders and their MPs and their voters all understand what happens in that system whereas in New Zealand you know it's been in place only 25 years or so so I think there's still a little bit of confusion in New Zealand in New Zealand when people are going to vote about what their outcome will be and how it's democratic or not democratic do you think people so, yeah are, there's still things to learn do you think people are learning faster now I think especially I the um, two elections ago in New Zealand that was a bit of a, a shock for some voters, especially uh, national voters. They thought they got the majority of votes, so they should have right to lead. But national couldn't get a um, enough of a co strong enough coalition. So going forward, I think that was a real wake up call for New Zealand voters and for you know some MPs as well. Exactly. Now, what's um, briefly? Can you tell uh, Kelly? Can you? comment on the German politics over the last two decades? Well, both of you are starting with Kelly this time. Oh, for me? Okay. Um, for both of you, but you first. Last, last two decades, I guess, you know, uh, Angela Merkel, who everyone in New Zealand would have heard of, she's been in power for the last 16 years. So that's been, um, I guess, a time of stability in Germany. Um, before that was Gerd Schroeder, who was from more of the left-leading party. And, um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll pass over to Matt. He was the one who, who prepared more for this <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, so, so Merkel has been the defining feature of the last sort of couple of decades. She came to power in 2005, as Serena said, taking over from, from Gerhard Schroeder, who led a coalition of the Social Democrat SPD and the Green Parties. Um, 
and that has been in power ever since with different coalition partners. She was in grand coalitions with the SPD um, in 2005, 13 and 17, and in a black-yellow coalition named after the party colours with the Free Democrats in 2009. But I guess if we're talking about um, German electoral politics over the last couple of decades is kind of two themes that, that that really stand out two big trends the first has been the decline of those those big tent those those mass parties the volkspartei and the people's parties as they call them in germany and in particular the decline of the social democrats the spd the cdu csu and the spd have historically polled in the 30 to 40 percent um, vote range at elections but since the 2009 election the SPD um, has been in the low to mid 20s and seemingly unable to, to, to shift from there Christian Democrats support the CDU support has held up much more until this last election when they collapsed as you mentioned at the at the top of the show to around 24 percent that might only be a blip for the CDU, um, but it, it so far at least seems a relatively permanent state for the SPD, though who knows over the next electoral cycle. So that's kind of the first trend. The second has been the rise of, I think, parties on the extremes of the political spectrum. So this polarisation. So we had Die Linke, the left, coming in at the 2005 election, um, though their support plummeted this time around. And then, of course, uh, more problematically, as everyone will no doubt be aware, we have the emergence of the far-right Alternative for Deutschland, the alternative for Germany, um, which was founded in 2013 and narrowly missed that 5% threshold in the elections in 2013. But over the next sort of several years, they won seats in 14 of the 17 Länder and 14 of the 17 states. Um, and then in the 2017 election, they got more than 12% of the vote. They became the official opposition um, because the SPD went into grand coalition with the, the, the CDU. And while the support of that party is, is stronger in the former East Germany, it does have traction everywhere. It is all across um, Germany. And you know, its support has declined ever so slightly this time around by a couple of, of percentage points in the polls, but it doesn't look like it's going away. The SPD, uh, did they gain any votes? Is there level of support the same as the election before? Uh, they did um, gain some votes, uh, not a huge amount, 5%, um, which for the Volkspartei and the big parties is, is not a huge amount, though for them that's 25% increase in vote on, on the 2017 election. Now, Angela Merkel, what is her legacy? And um, were you surprised knowing her background, when she was more generous uh, toward um, refugees in almost any other country in Europe, and concerning her party. And she, were you surprised at that or not? Um, well, in terms of her legacy, I think her legacy is contested, and part of it is to do with that, that immigration issue. Um, I think from outside of Germany and, and, and the world, her, her legacy is, is much more positive than necessarily is the case inside Germany itself. Um, on the positive side of the equation, 
she has been a key figure in helping stabilize the European Union, for example. Germany's really in the engine room of Europe, and that role of, of the German Chancellor is important to, to the way the EU operates. And when Merkel became Chancellor, um, I think Serena will agree here, the Union was in something of a disarray. Uh, the constitutional uh, treaty that they had been working on for a number of years to put it on a firmer footing and bring it closer to its citizens um, had just been rejected and referenda by two of the founding members, France and the Netherlands. So Merkel's approach to Europe became really one that was characterised by promoting stability rather than pursuing grand goals. It was that steady-as-she-goes approach. And so she helped to midwife um, the Lisbon Treaty through, which, which introduced some important reforms. She played a big role in addressing the Eurozone debt crisis in 2008, the migrant crisis, as you just mentioned, in 2015, um, and, of course, the COVID pandemic now. Um, also on the positive side, for Germans at least, there's been pretty steady economic growth in Germany over her time in office. Nothing stellar, but they certainly haven't had those downturns that have been characteristic of other parts of, of the world. And unemployment has been at record lows, a good thing. So a majority of Germans, a huge majority of Germans, consider their economic situation personally to be extremely positive at the moment. On the negative side, in terms of her legacy, there's been an obsession with what the Germans refer to as the Schwarze Null, the black zero. Um, in other words, balancing Germany's books. So there was a law introduced in 2009 um, that put a debt break in place, a Schuldenbremse in place. In New Zealand. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what this means is that that government has been, under Merkel, has been unwilling to borrow money to invest in economic modernization and in things like the transition to, to um from carbon-based to renewable energy, which is particularly important in Germany because following the Fukushima disaster in 2011, they made a commitment to eliminate all their nuclear power plants by 2022, and they're on track to do that. So those, the absence of that sort of investment is going to have a big impact going forward, and particularly that, that energy gap as the, the, the nuclear plants wind down, they're going to find themselves more reliant on Putin's Russia for gas supplies to you know, keep the home fires burning. But probably the, the biggest criticism that is levelled at Merkel is creating the space for far right-wing populism to flourish in Germany and, and in Europe. That insistence on austerity and the debt crisis, um, particularly in Greece, and that unilateral opening of borders in the migrant crisis um, in 2015, while being seen by many as positive solutions to those problems, were seen by others as having fueled um, the rise of the right wing and of populists across the continent, and particularly in Germany. The, the, the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, grew off the back of Merkel's migration policy. In terms of whether it was a surprise from her, in some ways, yes, but she's a very logical politician. Um, and I think for Merkel, there was that view that, that keeping these people outside at the borders was not working and the best solution the most humanitarian solution was to let them in and deal with them on home ground do you think it had anything to do with her background her father was a, a pastor in east germany when being a pastor in east germany was not the uh the, the most promising career no yeah i mean that would have been from my perspective about her legacy is part of that is about her background. So she was the first female chancellor and also she was, yeah, she grew up in Eastern Germany. So 
I think, you know, 16 years down the line, it's it's easy to forget that background. It's pretty astonishing, though, if you do take yourself back to then, that she was able to do it because there was still such a what's called the, you know, the, the wall in the head between East and West Germany. I um, spent a year in um, Eastern Germany after the wall came down, but I, I could see it you know the the difference between the Vessies and the Aussies so I think it's um it's easy to forget it's easy to forget but pretty astounding that she was able to rise you know come rise above the ranks and become chancellor in such a short amount of time after the end of the the Cold War I think also as a you know as someone based in New Zealand her legacy um, is probably more positive than, you know, how Matt's talking in, in Germany itself. In Germany, they they look a lot at the internal. Um, and I know that's why some um, colleagues of ours in Germany read an article that we wrote for the conversation. And they were, they found a, um, a relief just to see, you know, that bigger picture about about Merkel's legacy. She is um, connected to that uh, growing up in Eastern Germany. She's a, a Russian speaker. And so her relationship with Putin has been really important over the last 16 years. Um, if you take yourself back, there's been a number of incidences with Russia, for example, uh, Ukraine started the Ukrainian crisis, I guess. Ukraine started to look more towards the European Union and a relationship with that, which led to um, a lot of discord in Ukraine uh, and um, maybe, you know, a lack of trust was an issue. So um, the EU ended up bringing in sanctions, but also um, took a policy of non-isolation. So Merkel's got this, she doesn't take, um, I guess apart from that, opening the borders for the migrants, she generally takes quite a, um, a non-controversial line and a very practical um, solutions to issues that, that arise, whether that's in Germany or whether that's in Europe. Um, and she took a similar stance with relationship with China, um, it, it was about keeping doors open, about carrots, not sticks, about practical measures, about a, a, a term called geoeconomics, um, and very much distanced herself from the US-China um, ongoing sort of economic conflict that was going on there. Uh, you would say that Merkel was much more practical and diplomatically orientated than um, perhaps President Trump, for example. So they would be my um, my things about her legacy. And I've also read somewhere that she was called the, the woman who held Europe together. I don't know if um, it was an outstanding contribution when it comes to European integration because European integration has been at the forefront of of German policy since the end of World War II. So Germany really relies on Europe and Europe on Germany and vice versa. So, yeah, there's lots of things to think about because it went for so long. She she stood for, um, there were, I think she went through four French presidents. So she's been that constant. And that so there's a lot, there's a lot that we don't know going forward. Of course, German politics has always been slightly more stable since MMP than the yeah. French uh, could you tell me about? Do you expect the new? Who do you expect to be the new chancellor? Even is it still up in the air? And will they take a year? 
Well, as long as they took uh, in the previous election. Either um, of you. Yeah. Well, it, the previous election, it took them five months um, to, yeah. to form yeah, a government. I know. I was exaggerating when I said a year. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, part of that was the, the fact that um, the initial potential coalition partner of Angela Merkel's CDU walked away um, in a huff partway through the negotiations. Um, so, you know, they had to restart again and ended up forming a, a grand coalition. Um, at this stage, if we ignore the far right, the, the AFD, which remains beyond the pale in terms of coalition formation, there are two realistic uh, prospects for the next government. The first is the Umpel or Traffic Light Coalition, um, which would be the Social Democrats, the Greens and the, the Free Democrats, so named after the party colours, red, green, yellow, um, with Scholz, Olaf Scholz as Chancellor. The second realistic option is the Jamaica Coalition um, of the CDU uh, with the Greens and the Free Democrats, so black, green, red, the colours of the Jamaican flag, hence Jamaica Coalition. Um, and that would if that came through, possibly Lachette as Chancellor. He's the current Chancellor candidate, but that's not a foregone conclusion. Anybody can become mm. Chancellor so long as they get the support of the Bundestag. There is a remote possibility, you know, a mathematical possibility of another grand coalition between the, the SPD and the CDU, but the Social Democrats are definitely not keen on that. They've had that for the last couple of electoral cycles, and as a consequence of that, there's been massive party infighting in the SPD. So, so if they were to go into a grand coalition again, there's the potential that they could tear themselves apart. Um, who's going to come out on top? Well, it could still feasibly go either way, but Schultz and the SPD are currently in the driving seat. So that traffic light coalition um, is currently in the, the, the front runner. The three parties, three potential parties there, have held exploratory talks over the last weeks. And on Monday yesterday, um, all of the parties voted to, to move from exploratory talks to begin formal coalition negotiations. Now, that, again, as I said, is not a guarantee. In 2017, the Free Democrats, who are one of these parties in this potential coalition, walked away from, from the Jamaica coalition negotiations with the CDU and the Greens. So anything is still possible in that respect. Yeah. But at the moment, Schultz is in the driving seat. Yeah. And I'd say Schultz would be a preferred chancellor as well. Lachette doesn't, um, he's been attributed to the reason why they didn't get the majority votes. He's not a popular candidate at the moment. I think I even read somewhere that he's considering stepping down and, it's well, I guess uh, you know, if he loses, then he probably will. But even in the short term, he's considering that as well. Certainly, Schultz is much more popular, more so than his party. So, his party got was at 25.7% of the vote. But mm. the popularity, personal popularity of Schultz as, as potential chancellor is in the 40%. So, yeah, does that surprise people? For Schultz, definitely. <laughs> um, he was he has a nickname, the Schultzomat. Um, because he's a somewhat grey um, sort of mm -hmm. bureaucrat who tended to give stock standard answers. Um, and his, his popularity, I think, as Serena's alluded to there, is, is, has really been a consequence of, of the, um, the lack of popularity, shall we say, of the other potential Do people see him as sort of a steady person, almost uh, Angela Merkel on the left? Certainly, and he, he classes himself as being a successor to Merkel as well. Mm. Um, certainly much of his election campaign was was talking about being a continuity candidate. You had a you know the, the strange scenario where, where Armin Lachette, the Merkel's successor in the CDU, and Olaf Scholz, the, the leader of the SPD, were both 
defining themselves as continuity candidates from Merkel. Mm, and yeah, and I mean, he was the finance minister under Merkel, so um, you know he's been in the driving seat in the last few years. It's well, a really important position he held. Will he be able to take up some of the slack in um, investment in infrastructure that they need, like in um, uh, wind farms and other uh, activities? Yeah. We have the the strength to do that if if he forms a coalition with the Greens. That's, that's going to come down to the actual outcome of the coalition negotiation. I mean, this is this is going to be a really tight negotiation. Um, now, the election itself was a kind of an odd one in German terms in that it was very light on policy. It was all about candidates. So we don't really know what the key priorities and red lines of the parties are yet. Um, and coalition formation this time is going to be a really balanced affair as well, because the SPD has got a relatively low vote, 24.7%, compared to its two potential coalition partners. That empowers them in the negotiations. Um, it's a three-party coalition. Germany's only ever had two-party coalitions in government before, which again makes discussions much more difficult. Um, but there are you know, these exploratory talks that have come that have gone on over the last couple of weeks. There's some indication has come through as to to where they might go. And when it comes to to um, the key elements, if you're talking about that that carbon neutral transition, that transition to yeah. renewable energy, there have been some negatives um, come out. So. The SPD and the Greens both wanted to, to relieve this, this sort of debt break, wanted to be able to borrow in order to be able to invest in, in you know, carbon uh, neutral policies and renewable energy. The Free Democrats, um, who are sort of neoliberal in character, were fundamentally opposed. Um, the preliminary talks agreed not to loosen the debt break. So they're not going to have all of that, that, that money that they hope to be able to borrow to invest in it, which is a negative in terms of carbon transition. Um, in terms of the climate side of the equation, um, all of the parties are in favour of, of transitioning to climate neutrality. The Greens in particular wanted to have much more government intervention to achieve this, so so tax and spend intervention to achieve this. The, the Free Democrats, again, this neoliberal party, were more in favour of offering incentives to the private sector rather than government regulation. Preliminary talks um, have committed to the Paris Climate Accord. Um, they've agreed to accelerate the phase out of coal, and there are a number of other policies as well. But what they've also done is agreed to accept the Free Democrats' policy of not increasing taxes. So the Social Democrats, the SPD and the Greens both wanted to raise taxes on the wealthy. Um, the Free Democrats wanted no tax increases and, in fact, wanted to cut taxes on, on the wealthy and on business. Um, at this stage, they've agreed not to raise taxes, so they're no longer going to be able to borrow um, significant amounts on the global uh, market. They are not going to be able to increase taxes. This is not looking good in terms of major investments in, in transition is, is this one of the is this one of the problems of neoliberalism that they're unwilling to spend uh, to borrow for basic infrastructure really basic infrastructure you've seen this in the United States in a big way I can sort of talk a little bit about the EU they had a, um, a huge um, budget that, that was agreed to last year it was 750 billion and it was a COVID relief 
budget. So there is starting to look like, and there's discussions within the EU about whether they will, you know, increase borrowing and that sort of thing. And I guess um, Schultz has been, you know, as German finance minister, he's been part of that. So there, I, I think things are changing slightly. I and mean, a lot of um, people were surprised at how big this, this budget was for the COVID relief. And a lot of that is linked to um, the Green Deal. So about renewable energy going forward. What do you think, Matt? Well, I, I, getting, I guess, back to the question as to whether it's an issue with neoliberalism, from my perspective, yes. I mean, it's it's it's, it's plumbed in to, to, to neoliberal economic doctrine. Um, if a state is borrowing um, on the global stage to, to spend on things like infrastructure or whatever the case may be, that is, by definition, an intervention of the state in the market. And that sort of market dirigism is, is, is something that is fundamentally imposed by neoliberal doctrine. The state should be minimal, it should be rolled back, it should keep its hands off the market because the market will deliver the best economic outcomes. My perspective is that that does not happen. The market does not deliver the best economic result and certainly not the best result in terms of, of um, social justice and so on. That requires direct state intervention. But yes, that, that neoliberal emphasis, I would argue, from parties like the FDP does, does mitigate against massive state intervention. Well, we're going to play a piece of music now and then we'll carry on. soon you'll see if you'll break some bread with me when our two worlds collide it's so easy to take sides so we're trying to find better way by baking bread today will you break some bread with me won't you join our company our lives will be better soon you'll see if you break some
us down and spread division around. I'll be nothing or no one can drive us apart if we can find peace in our heart. So from that kitchen in Donegal, there comes a message to one and all. Just baking bread and a smiling face can make this world a safer place. Will you break some bread with me? Won't you join our company? Our lives will be better soon. You'll see if you'll break some bread with me. Well, baking bread together is better than breaking treaties. <laughs> <laughs> this was from uh, Kenny Spears, um, Scottish uh, English, a Scottish person lives on the border between England and Scotland. But he's speaking of another border. There's a woman who has a large household in on the border between uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland, who um, has gotten people together from both sides. We've gotten people together from both sides of the border to bake bread together. Scott, uh, Protestants and, and Catholics. Mm-hmm. And you can still podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. And we're speaking with Sharina. Kelly and uh, Matthew Dodge from the University of Canterbury where they're doing European studies. Well, welcome back to the program. And um, I think I'll do this now instead of later since we've had this song. What do you see the future of Northern Ireland? And I know that they they actually voted in Northern Ireland to remain part of the European Union. And it looks like the uh, National Party is thinking of breaking the treaty, the recent treaty agreement they made with the European Union over the Northern Ireland border and yeah. customs. The situation, I understand it, is uh, while the, the European Union well, England was part of the European Union, and Britain, Great Britain was. There were no border restrictions between Southern and Northern Ireland. And that took a lot of the tension away from that border region. And it was mm-hmm. part of the actual agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, the end of the bloodshed there. But uh, the, the more extreme Brexit's uh, quite unhappy with the um, not having um, 
a border stations and uh, between Northern and Southern Ireland. And the, the ag agreement was that there would be, I understand, uh, that the, the uh, customs would be on the, the RC instead of, and now it looks like uh, the, the British Conservative Party may renege on that. Boris Johnson may renege on this promise. What's your opinion about this? And am I very far off? No, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, the biggest sticking point, so you, you may recall that it took a number of years for um, the negotiations for the United Kingdom once it voted in the referendum by about 52% in 2016 to leave the European Union. The biggest um, issue that they had to negotiate was this um, the Irish Protocol. Um, and the it is an area, Angela Merkel has been very supportive of it. You know, her number one priority, I know the Irish actually, after the Brexit vote, went to, to Berlin to talk to Merkel because they knew she was so important in the European Union. And for Merkel, the importance going forward with the EU was to create, to keep the, um, the free market and um, and solidarity. So it has been the one area in the last six years or so that Europe has been 100% in support of Ireland. And um, the big thing there is nobody wants to see a border. The UK or Ireland or anyone within Europe wants to see another border erected between uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, Theresa May, when she was um, renegotiate, when she was negotiating the leave, she suggested having more um, market regulation, so like a deepest, a deeper end of the swimming pool in Northern Ireland, but that would have kept the whole of the United Kingdom as part of the EU single market. So Boris Johnson's idea was to bring in the um, the border, as you say, in the Irish Sea, um, but it is creating. Um, a lot of sort of discontent. You might have heard that lately they've been talking about sausage wars and and issues with getting you know <laughs> products um, into Northern Ireland and also into Southern Ireland. So it has been apparently from my um, Irish colleagues, I've heard that there's been huge changes in the in the supermarkets, for example, in Ireland. There's no longer so much you know British products produce because of the the rules and regulations. Um, but it's in a treaty and, you know, the EU operates, one of its core values is the rule of law. So I can't see how, you know, the the current conservative government in the United Kingdom can just say, no, you know, we're, we're not doing that anymore. It's part of the EU and, you know, the EU still has 27 member states. So, um, and it, yeah. The EU has tabled a... a, a fairly generous in my view offer to the UK at the moment that that would relieve some of the the restrictions on about 80 percent of the product um, going from from Britain um, into Ireland um, which is a big transition but um, I, I guess sort of from a broader perspective this is an example of the 
UK finding itself in a different relationship to Ireland than has historically been the case. The mm. UK has generally been the big boy in relations with Ireland and able to push it around whenever it felt the, the need to do so, in fact, being the colonial power there for a number of years. The situation's reversed. Britain is now out of the European Union. Ireland is still in. It's Ireland that, that alongside the EU, has the clout in this relationship now. And I think the British establishment is finding that quite hard to deal with. Mm. The, the Irish is some of the um, is one of the EU countries that is in most support of the European Union, and they've recognised the value of being part of the wider community. And European yes. integration has greatly benefited, for example, the Irish economy. Were you surprised that Northern Ireland voted to stay in? No, no, I was surprised that there was not much debate in the British media about you know, the potential implications on Northern Ireland for leaving the European Union. It just seemed to, you know, there was a, I think a lot of votes were more inward looking and not looking at that, that bigger picture. And I think it's, yeah, a shame for Ireland that it's happened. Well, it's I, a shame I was for less surprised by that, that absence from the media than Serena was of either the, the, the Northern Irish issue or the Scottish issue. The Brexit was very much an English obsession as opposed to a, a Scottish and, and Irish um, obsession. And, and, and it was the English that, that, that carried the vote. Do you think they ever look back on that and wonder why they did that? Some of them already are. Um, remember, it was a fairly tight vote yeah. um, and, and a fairly significant proportion of the, the British yeah. electorate are regretting the decision that was taken. Some people sort of throw around that, you know, they might want to join again in the future and that's not ruled out and I'm not saying it will happen. But, you know, the I guess the ironic thing was that the UK had a really good situation within the EU. It was able to pick and choose certain policies. It wasn't part of the Eurozone. It wasn't part of Schengen, um, you know, the free movement. Um, so, it, it's, it got a, a good deal, and if it went back in, then it would need to re, it would need to take on all the rules and regulations that all new member states of the European Union take on. And then beyond that, beyond having some of those those sort of special circumstances allowed for it, the UK was a driver of some of the key elements of European integration. The UK was behind, um, in many ways, the single market program, this, this common market framework that, that they then eventually voted against. This was, this was built very much to British design, and, and the British were, were key in, in many of the, the, the EU's um, sort of external policies, global policies as well. So, so they were a very loud voice, a very large influence within the European Union, in many cases, getting exactly what they wanted mm. um, with the way integration was structured. Mm. And I guess that brings it back to the discussion about neoliberalism, is mm. that the UK was the the one of the drivers of that neoliberal um, push within the EU. And so, so I guess what I was trying to get at earlier, which I didn't quite get to um, in my thoughts, but uh, it was with because the United Kingdom had left the EU at the end of last year with that COVID-19 recovery plan um, that such a, a huge deal was able to be taken. If the United Kingdom was still in the EU, then the um, then it wouldn't have been near as big. Near if Schultz becomes a chancellor of Germany, which is a pretty good chance, I mean, probably the Greens are much more in favor of 
uh, aligning themselves with us, these social democrats then with the conservatives. Uh, what will this mean for the European Union, and will he be a, a good leader there? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a big policy, there wasn't a big push um, in the election, and we've seen elections like this in New Zealand as well, where there's not a lot of policy. It was more about, you know, people and personalities, I guess, from an academic perspective, it was a, a, a postmodern election. Um, but the main candidates were quite consistent and they were they were campaigning about you know being more of the same so it's hard to know going forward if there'll be any big changes but as i said earlier for germany eu and or european integration is has been key of its um of its policy since the end of World War II. And, you know, at the heart of European integration is that friendship and relationship between France and Germany. So I guess, you know, the next thing, the next big thing after this election is, is French the, election. the French election. Yes. How do you feel that will go? <laughs> I don't know. Have you looked into that at all, Matt? Uh, at this stage, it looks like that that Macron will squeak in against probably a far-right candidate into the, the, the second round. Um, and if a, another far-right candidate does get through to the second round, um, particularly if it's if it's Marie Le Pen, then um, I'm sure Macron will come through. Mm -hmm. If it's this new fellow, Zamour, um, things could be a little more hairy. So who knows? But, I mean, just to add to what Serena said about, about the elections of it's probably important to recognise that apart from that far-right party, the, the Alternative for Deutschland, all of the parties in Germany are pro-European. So whichever coalition does take power, whether it's the traffic light or Jamaica, um, that coalition will be pro-integration. And the, the Greens and the Free Democrats um, in particular are in favour of much deeper integration in the European Union. Across all of the parties, there's general agreement um, that they need to extend the powers of the European Parliament um, to increase its legislative role. Um, there's also broad agreement on the need for, for voting reform to make um, it easier for the EU to function um, on the global stage. Um, and then parties like the, the SPD, um, the CDU and the Free Democrats also all support a much deeper defence cooperation within Europe. So the German um, political establishment is very pro-European. And I guess a lot of EU policy is, you know, decided quite in advance. So they've got about a six yearly sort of cycle. And so, for example, the Green Deal that's already in motion agreed to, you know, things are in place to reduce carbon emissions by 55% um, for 2030 and then carbon neutrality by 2050, which I think actually the German, um, it went through the German courts and they were going to bring that back to 2045. Yeah, yeah. even 2038 I've, I've heard yeah. mentioned recently as well. So, the, um, Will Schultz, uh, if he comes Chancellor, will this enable the European Union, even though Germany is tied to having no not raising debt or not raising taxes, will the European Union be able to change their economic policy? So what happened in Greece wouldn't necessarily happen again. So this is things that are still in discussion, and I wouldn't rule it out. You know, there's there is discussions within the EU, and they they're always sort of tweaking policy. Um, a lot of 
the EU and its integration is sort of ad hoc, incremental, and it changes according to what's needed. You know, there's no finite area of EU policy. So it's, I wouldn't rule it out, um, some of those fiscal changes. They're, they're, they're there, and I guess, you know, within Europe, if you're part of the European Union, it's not just about your um, nation, your member, st- your member state politics, but also, you know, the wider picture as well. But then in, in Germany as well, um, a minister in Germany is, is much more empowered than is, for example, a minister in New Zealand. Um, in Germany, the chancellor sets the general direction that the government will take, but it's up to ministers to drive their own departments and make the big decisions. Chancellors do not step in and overrule ministers. So whoever becomes the finance minister in Germany and the, the Free Democrats, this neoliberal party's leader, Christian Lindner, is, is very keen on that job, shall we say, um, will have a major role in, in, in formulating those decisions at the European level as well. So, do you think the whatever coalition they have will last? Will last the full electoral cycle, four years? They generally do. German German governments don't collapse before before elections. Is there a movement in European Union? to make it more democratically representative? It's a, it's a good question, and um, I'm sure you're aware that the EU has often been criticised for being for its so-called democratic deficit. Uh, you can't teach a course on this sort of thing without bringing it up, but I guess it depends on your definition of democracy. The, the way the EU is structured is that elected, it's mainly directly elected um, ministers from EU member states who who have their say and have their voice within the European Union. Every six months, the heads of state get together and decide on the future direction, on the direction of the EU for that upcoming six months. So things can't get decided without the approval of you know, the the leaders of the EU member states. Increasingly, the European Parliament has been um, granted, so since the Lisbon Treaty has been granted more more of a say in EU policy and they, they've got a, a strong area in the EU budget, which I think a lot of people were surprised that the Parliament has, has gotten so much um, power over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, and then thinking from the, you know, we've talked a lot about Germany's role, obviously, because it's the largest economy and the largest population in the EU as it currently is. But it also, you know, gives smaller member states like Ireland as a great example. You know, they feel um, very positive being part of the EU. I know there is currently a convention going on on an I guess it's mainly online. It's called a convention for the future of Europe. And it's trying to engage EU citizens to, you know, give feedback and policies on the EU and where it should go. But um, so far it's had about 19,000 sort of engagements from EU citizens. You know, and I guess, you know, if you look at the the, the total population of around 430, is it 430 million citizens, it's not that many. So the EU does seem to 
lack, you know, be to fail sometimes in the area of trying to engage its own citizens. Serena's absolutely right. I mean, there are a couple of things here about that that democratic issue with the EU. Um, the EU, first, it does have democratic elements. You know, the European Parliament, which is one of the, the main legislators, is directly elected. The Council of the EU, which is the other legislator, is made up of ministers who have gone through their own national electoral processes, as Serena said. Then you've got the European Council, which is made up of heads of state. So again, they've gone through those national electoral processes. But the second issue is recognising that the EU itself is not a state. It's an international organisation, um, and we can't compare it to, to, to states in the same way. It's unique in form as an international organisation, but if we compare it to other institutions like the World Trade Organisation or the International Monetary Fund or to, to institutional agreements like the CPTPP, which New Zealand is now a part of, which have a similarly significant influence on the lives of, of people, how much direct say do we have in those? Well, By comparison big, to them, the EU problem. is a wonder of democracy. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's just a matter of where your measurement lies. Okay. I guess where states develop um, can have huge influence on where they go in the long run. For instance, the American Constitution and the fact that uh, Wyoming would have as much say over uh, what happens in American politics as California because they've got the same number of senators. Senators, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it makes you aware of uh, what you want to build and how you build it. <laughs> yeah. Within the council, it's set up for the voting If the, when they do sometimes qualified majority voting. It's set up so, you know, you need a certain population of the EU to approve of of a new regulation and it's set up also so that the big states can't control the overall um, outcome as well. So it's, it's a double lock procedure. You need a certain number of votes representing a certain percentage, 55% of, of the member states' population. So, Okay. Are you, I would take it that you're both fairly optimistic about the EU then. <laughs> yes, and watching very closely because um, New Zealand's um, currently negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU, so I've been, I've been watching that closely. Well, thanks a lot for coming along, and we've got about one minute, so if anything either of you would like to say for about a minute. I guess the, if we go back to the German election, the interesting thing, you mentioned the, the, the time frame for coalition formation at the, at the top. Um, if coalition formation pushes towards Christmas... Merkel will go from being the second longest serving chancellor in modern Germany to the longest serving chancellor in, in modern Germany. So she may well be sitting there with her fingers crossed to, to outbid, so out, um, outlast her, her predecessor, Helmut Kohl, of whom she was a protege. Her mentor. Mm. Okay. Anything, any thought, last minute thoughts from you, Kelly? Um, yeah, I think it's just, I guess, for New Zealand listeners is to, you know, keep an eye on the, how those negotiations are going. Uh, I know the EU and Australia currently, you know, aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye with the um, AUKUS deal has upset one of the, the key players in the EU, France. 
Um, and yeah, going forward, I think we are, I've heard that we should be close to um, signing that free trade agreement, which oh, New Fran Zealand will yeah, be. France is probably happier for. with New Zealand right now than with Australia. <laughs> Was it always that way between France and New Zealand, though, was it? As no. <laughs> I remember the Rainbow Warrior. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot for coming on and for giving us perspective on Europe and Germany. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.